Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof. He's written a compelling piece on how to curtail the scourge of gun deaths in the U.S. I think we can do a better job of limiting access to people. That's what we do in other harm reduction models. We know that uh, you know cigarettes are lethal, that alcohol is lethal, and we limit those by age. Now, here are your hosts Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. We've had 82 mass shootings in our country so far this year, and the number keeps growing. And yet only 53% of Americans say gun laws should be stricter than they are right now. Are there solutions to this crisis? Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Nicholas Kristof writes in the New York Times about smarter ways to decrease gun deaths, and you're about to hear him explain them. Well, Nick, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Great to be with you. Yeah, you know, and really thank you for joining us uh, from your home in Oregon. And you write that in order uh, to break the gun violence paralysis, we need to focus less on guns and more on those firing them. And you believe that means keeping guns away from risky people. I wonder if you could elaborate more on that. Well, I mean, one statistic that always strikes me, women over 50 in the U.S. commit uh, fewer than 100 gun homicides a year. In contrast, men... 49 and under, commit more than 500 murders with their hands and fists alone. So, you know, essentially a a young man is far more dangerous with his fists than a woman over 50 is in the U.S. You could pretty much hand out, you know, mortars and anti-aircraft guns to women over 50 with no criminal record. And um, if they didn't share them with the men in their lives, you know, we'd probably be okay. In contrast, you know, pellet guns can be dangerous with uh, young men. And what I think we can do a better job of is uh, limiting access to people. That's what we do in other harm reduction models. We know that, uh, you know, cigarettes are lethal, that alcohol is lethal, uh, and we limit those by age. I mean, age is the obvious way to limit people. I think that there is also some possibility of moving politically on that in a country that is very divided. You know, here in Oregon, you can buy a handgun at 18. Uh, this is a very blue state, and yet the age is 18. In Wyoming, one of the most pro-gun states in the country, you have to be 21. Can, you know, I, I have this conversation with with uh, Second Amendment supporting friends all the time. And, you know, I say, look, if Wyoming can make the minimum age 21, then surely we can in Oregon as well. And you know, as long as they're over 21, they tend to agree. Well, certainly public health initiatives have been front and center in all of our minds throughout the COVID pandemic. So it's an interesting one to uh, follow out how we might take those initiatives and apply them to guns. And tell us more, what, what would your recommendation be for a public health approach to uh, reducing death from guns? Sure. And, you know, I should say that these these aren't my ideas, but ideas I've stolen from other people, including yeah. David Hemingway yeah. at the Harvard School of Public Health wrote a, uh, what for me was a very influential book oh, 15 years ago about addressing uh, gun violence as a public health matter. So if you look at other elements of daily life that are dangerous, we learn to live with them, but we try to reduce how many people they kill. So cars are a great example. Cars historically killed more Americans than firearms. But over the decades, we have built cars to make them safer. 
We had uh, seat belts. We had airbags. Uh, we submit cars to all kinds of crash testing to see survivability in a crash. We readjusted highways uh, so we have better lighting. We have you know corrugated edges on the highway so you wake up if you're leaving the road. We limited access so that young drivers now you get uh, graduated uh, licenses. So we've really taken a evidence-based approach, a public health approach to reducing the lethality of vehicles. And in contrast, we haven't done that with firearms. Uh, we, since 1921, we've reduced the fatality rate of guns per 100 million miles driven by 95%. Um, that's an incredible success. And, and in the U.S. in recent years, that has stagnated. European countries have gone well ahead of us in reducing the fatality rate from motor vehicles. But we haven't taken that public health approach toward guns. And so guns now kill more Americans each year than cars do. Why do you think that? I'm just sort of wondering. Obviously, the gun advocates go to this. Uh, it's in the Constitution. Cars aren't in the Constitution. But it's a little different. Well, um, look, I'm speaking to you from rural Oregon um, on the family farm. I grew up with guns on the farm. I have a firearm. Everybody around here does. And many are very, very strong believers in the Second Amendment. But everybody understands that notwithstanding the Second Amendment, still, we accept that there are limits, that an individual should not be able to have a cannon, uh, should not be able to have an anti-aircraft weapon. So the question then becomes where we draw those lines and what access we provide in terms of the kinds of weapons. So the United States passed the National Firearms Act, which essentially limits people's ability to buy machine guns. And in general, I think most people uh, however much they believe in the Second Amendment, are good with that. Yeah. You know, we all recognize that you shouldn't be able to bring your handgun uh, on a public tour of the White House. There are limits in time, place, and manner of how we carry firearms. Yeah. So you can believe in the Second Amendment's individual rights and yet still accept that there are going to be limits on what kinds of weapons and where they can be and who gets access to where they can be used. You've praised Governor Newsom for his efforts. And I think that was a ballot initiative to implement background checks on the purchase of ammunition. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. That's a state where it made that decision to go forward. Is, is that how I understand that? how that uh, ammunition ban came forward. And maybe if you could share with us what are some of the early results showing. Yeah, so California has really been a leader and Gavin Newsom was one of the architects of that ballot initiative that voters passed easily. So the idea is that we have, in some states we have universal background checks, in other states is a little less universal, but in general, we, we have background checks to buy a firearm. Um, but you can't really use a firearm unless you have ammunition. And while the gun may last 100 years, ammunition, um, it uh, becomes less reliable after, mm -hmm. you know, about 20 years. And that we may be able to require the same kind of background check to buy ammunition. So that's what California did. And what they found is that an awful lot of people try to buy ammunition who can't pass that background check and in theory shouldn't have access to a firearm. You know, it, it does have some effect. Now, does it help? Yeah, I think it does. And, and California has also been quite good about uh, gathering data and about trying to get 
firearms away from people who are a threat to others or to themselves. And so if um, somebody is uh, has a domestic violence protection order against them, seems dangerous to their ex, no place does it perfectly. But in California, it's more likely that there will be an effort to remove guns from that person than, than happens in other states. And, you know, all this is imperfect. And I mean, we had mass shootings in California. But if I remember right, uh, the gun homicide rate in California is 28% below the national average, which suggests that there are some lives being saved. And I guess in general, I would take that as approximately the margin that of lives that can be saved if we use politically plausible measures that we're not going to eliminate gun violence in America. We have about 400 million guns in this country. They're going to be a lot of people killed and injured in this country. But I do think that if we take a public health approach, an evidence-based approach, that it's plausible we could reduce that rate by about a third and, um, you know, save maybe 13,000 lives a year. That would be really something. Absolutely. Well, I I would add just pragmatic, the ammunition uh, bill that was passed. So thank you for uh, sharing that with us. And I know, Nick, you're uh, in a position of having uh, to defend your uh, points on this subject. David French wrote a critique in uh, National Review uh, some time ago about your arguments and says, gun advocates like himself have proven they can decrease crime while protecting uh, the Second Amendment. And some people point to the Pew Research Center reports uh, that the rate of gun deaths today is below levels of the past, which, of course, completely flies in the face of what we all are thinking these days as just in the last several days, you know, one shooting involving three or four or five fatalities after a row. But what's your response uh, to people who say, actually, they've, they've already shown that they can decrease crime while protecting the Second Amendment? You know, it's true. <laughs> and it's I, I do think that my side, the world of liberals, that we sometimes become to glib about the perils of guns. And there is a correlation between the number of guns in a society and the number of gun homicides, but it's not a uh, direct correlation. There's a lot of of movement there, and it also depends on the age of the society, all kinds of other factors. uh, and, you know, any any individual car is more likely to kill somebody than any individual gun. It's complicated. We have regulated cars in ways that do make them say. And I guess, you know, one other thing that I would uh, thing that I think that um, conservatives kind of have a point on is that it's not just about regulating purchase of guns or of ammunition, but policing is also a factor. And it's one that I think is harder for us liberals to talk about. In this country, we have a long history of racist policing, but we also have a pretty good evidence base that policing can reduce gun violence. And there, you know, there have been various studies suggesting that uh, I think it's every Roughly every 15 extra police officers can, you know, reduce uh, homicides on average by one. I think we have to look at the gun side and the the law enforcement side, and also some things that aren't controversial, so we don't talk about. There is good evidence that better lighting in urban areas reduces uh, gun violence. That uh, greening vacant lots uh, reduces gun violence. You know, there. This is sort of the classic public health approach where you just try a bunch of things, you study them carefully, you, you do a randomized control trial, uh, and you learn 
what works and then you invest in the most cost-effective methods. And I don't think we've done enough of that. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You know, President Biden has really signed a number of historic executive actions, I think over 20, enacted the first uh, significant gun safety law. I'm wondering if you think the administration's approach is working and certainly looks less likely with the Republican-controlled House uh, for any future legislation. But what are your thoughts about the, the, the work the president has done? And speaking about somebody who understands the value of police, he's certainly one not to talk about defunding the police, but rather enhancing their role in the communities. I think that President Biden has uh, done a credible job on both the firearm side and the policing side. I think he has credibility uh, as somebody who has used guns. I wish that he were, frankly, that the administration were more aggressive on issues like ghost guns. Ghost guns are untraceable guns that are typically made from uh, from kits. And if you order them in parts, you can assemble it yourself. And then you have this untraceable uh, gun without a background check. But you know, fundamentally, I don't think that the leadership on gun policy is going to happen at the federal level. I think it's going to happen at the mm-hmm. state level. And I think you know that is going to be much more likely to be true of blue states. Uh, but I think the real movement is going to be at the um, at the state level. And I, I think the federal government can do more to support the states in trying to figure out how to craft limits on ghost guns or on 3D printers, for example, that produce uh, guns that perhaps can pass a, a, a metal detector. Is there anybody doing, you know, just finding the seam of opportunity between the right and the left on the conversation around guns? Is there anything out there that you'd sort of say, hey, this is something that might be very helpful in this larger conversation at the state level, local level, where people are, are trying to have a conversation about what are the right things to do? Boy, I wish there were more of that. I mean, I think that has been really hard and guns is one of yeah. these toxic issues that has been really hard to have those bridges. And people also tend to live in segregated worlds that right. either they and their friends don't have a gun in the household or they and their friends all do. You know, I must say that I've kind of gone out of my way to have those discussions. And I have found that it is possible, but social psychologists talk about uh, complexifying an issue to try to bridge these, to make these discussions. So I don't sit down with somebody who, you know, who's very passionate about gun rights and and are a member. And I don't ask about the second amendment. I don't ask about uh, ending uh, access to, to handguns, for example, but I talk about these very specific issues. I complexify it. So for example, the Wyoming has minimum age of 21 to buy a handgun in Oregon. Man, should we maybe raise the age too? And people are willing to have that discussion. Right. Uh, I say, look, we all recognize that when somebody has a domestic violence protection order against them, they're at a great danger to themselves and to their ex. Should we limit their ability to buy a firearm or ammunition? Uh, should we try to uh, make sure that they don't have access to guns in that period? Uh, what about somebody who talks about self-harm? Should we try to remove guns from that household? And again, People are willing to have that conversation. Safe storage is something that people are more nervous about. I mean, a lot of people think that they're going to protect their home if they have uh, a home bristling with guns. And I find that when I present the data on that, that actually a gun in the home is more likely to lead to a death in that home than than its absence. But 
I mean, one of the things that President Biden once said that got him in trouble with both left and right was he said he advised people to get a shotgun. And, uh, you know, if there's a potential home invasion, you just shoot out the window a couple of times. And everybody hated him for that remark. But if more people had a shotgun at home than had a nine millimeter handgun, we'd be in so much better shape. And I always tell my friends that when I, I'm a backpacker, when I backpack through grizzly country, um, I take bear spray because uh, you're better off statistically with bear spray than with a firearm to, to repel a grizzly bear. And I, uh, my bet is that, a, uh, is that bear spray might be more effective uh, against a uh, intruder, against home invasion than, um, you know, than a firearm would be. And I'd be less likely to end up dead. Um, yeah. Some states, you know, limit access to bear spray. Um, <laughs> we don't think of bear spray as a public health intervention, but uh, we just need to kind of think in creative ways, again, along the lines of harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Well, I uh, couldn't agree with you more about the need to simplify uh, some of this. So I have to say that the simplest uh, message perhaps that I would put on the table for people is the uh, report from the John Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions that uh, showed the burden on young people. And this is hard to even say, that gun violence is now the leading cause of death for young children and teenagers in the United States. Gun violence is the leading cause of death. I, I think we've got to get people's attention around that and in a way that nobody wants to see young people die from gun violence. And then you talk about the strategies and you mentioned one of them, uh, you know, requiring uh, people to lock up their weapons, right? Holding them responsible maybe uh, if they do not. And we certainly have read the tragic stories of uh, you know people, uh, kids getting their hands on them uh, or accidental uh, discharge. I'm also uh, remembering uh, certain states, I believe, uh, that really went strongly against the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation that we include in our well child visits in primary care. A simple thing from your trusted, hopefully, physician or nurse practitioner in a well child visit saying, do you have guns in the home? And if so, are they secured and locked up? And legislation was passed to make that something you couldn't do. What's, what's your answer uh, to people who, who can't even get behind what would seem like very pragmatic ways to keep young people from dying by gun violence? Well, you know, and your comment about physicians, I think is absolutely right that where clinical health and public health come together, that's when a trusted doctor asks people about whether they're drinking too much alcohol, whether you know there is a drug issue, uh, various other risky behaviors, sure. including having a gun in the home that you know may be loaded and you know kept on the shelf. And so I am such a believer in that kind of a conversation. It's a difficult conversation, partly because this country is so polarized and so toxic. I do think that one of the things that my world of liberals can do to make those conversations more possible is to lower the temperature a little bit and talk less about, you know, banning guns. And, you know, I never talk about gun control. I talk about gun safety, you know, acknowledging that we're going to have a lot of guns in this country, but there may be some steps we can take that will um, leave the country safer. And I I think that, and also if we're willing to touch the law enforcement side of that, I think that builds some space to, again, lower the toxicity here to some degree. We're never going to 
win over uh, every person, but it does help that the NRA seems to be collapsing. I do think that there are an awful lot of uh, Americans, uh, including those on the center and right, who recognize that we have a horrific firearm violence problem. Unfortunately, the solution that they've you know grabbed onto is to go buy a firearm themselves for self-defense and women in particular are now more likely to to buy weapons you know to me that's exactly the wrong conclusion it does mean that i think there are plenty of people who are less ideological and more willing to talk about okay maybe they've bought a weapon but maybe we can convince them to keep it in a gun safe or at least to put a trigger lock on it. We don't really know, but we think there are about 300,000 firearms stolen each year in the US. And hmm. those are guns who are going to the hands of various bad actors and often used in dangerous ways. You know, That's because we don't have more guns stored in, in gun safes, for example. Nick, let, let me shift gears a little. Uh, we, we know you as a prolific uh, journalist and opinion leader. Some of us would have liked to see you as a governor uh, in Oregon, but that, that didn't happen. Uh, but you weigh in on issues from U.S. domestic issues to international conflicts. I'm wondering if you might share some of your thoughts about we're coming up to the one year anniversary of Ukraine's the war in Ukraine. And then also, I know you have some reflections maybe on President Carter as he's taking hospice at home uh, at this point. Sure. I uh, so um, I guess on Ukraine, I would make the point that this is where I think values and interests align that what Russia is doing in Ukraine is, you know, is engaging in war crimes, crimes against humanity. Uh, I talked to people who had been uh, tortured and raped and civilian buildings attacked. Uh, hundreds of medical facilities have been have been attacked. I, I think President Biden uh, should provide more weaponry and more advanced weaponry, in particular long-range precision weaponry, so that the Ukrainians could hit Crimea and the both the land bridge that gives Russians access to Crimea and the sea bridge, the Kerch Bridge, right. that enables them to resupply their bases there. I think that if the Ukrainians could put more pressure on Crimea and Russian bases there, that will make Putin realize he's not going to win this war and make it will make it easier to have realistic uh, peace negotiations. So I'd like to see F-16s provided to to uh, Ukraine, uh, ATACMs, uh, long range missiles, uh, Great Eagle uh, drones and um, and continue the intelligence sharing and so on. Um, on Jimmy Carter, um, I mean, what a hero of public health. I mean, I, I tend to think that his his presidency was actually better than a lot of people think. I think he did a lot of really hard, difficult things like um, the Panama Canal Treaty, like, uh, well, uh, the, you know, Camp David, Camp David Middle East Peace Accords. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, he was one of the first to talk about green energy in, a, in, a, in an important way. He, he elevated human rights in a way they never had been elevated in this country. So I'm, you know, <laughs> I would be a defender of his presidency. But if you also look at what he's done after that, um, river blindness, I've traveled a lot in West Africa. There were vast, vast swaths of countries like Burkina Faso where nobody could live or farm because of river blindness. And it, you know, it's not being eradicated, but it's declined by, uh, I don't know, 95% or something. Uh, Guinea worm disease used to affect uh, 3 million people a year. And now we're, uh, 
I think that last last year there were about 15 cases or some maybe 13 cases uh, in humans uh, all over the world, uh, mostly in South Sudan. And that's because of Jimmy Carter. I mean, the way he has improved the lives of so many people in so much of the world uh, is um, is, I think, just extraordinary. And I've I met a lot of one of the great things about the columnist gig is I've met a lot of extraordinary people, presidents and kings and Nobel Peace Prize winners. Um, But it's hard to think of anybody who is as fundamentally good and has impacted more lives for a longer period than this one-term president who was afterward pretty much abandoned by his own party. Well, we talked about some tough topics this morning, so thank you for uh, that note about somebody who really brought so much much good uh, to the world. And uh, I think out of uh, recognition for his commitment to children uh, and to families, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about a topic that I know you've uh, got some uh, strong thoughts on uh, you and your wife, Cheryl Wudun, who we had on the show with you, I think the last time you visited us, wrote a terrific book a couple of years ago uh, called A Path Appears, Transforming Lives, Creating Opportunity. Uh, and it told the story of a program we're, we're quite well aware of that's been around for a couple of decades, the uh, nonprofit uh, Nurse Family Partnership, uh, which has been clearly shown to make a difference in the lives of babies and new parents. It's one of several programs that do this, but, but it has a long uh, track record, and Congress has just renewed funding for these home visiting programs. Share your perspective. Why are these so important? And what, what do they contribute uh, to a good and healthful society? One of the revolutions in trying to deal with social problems is that we used to have arguments and now we have evidence. And one of the areas of evidence that has emerged most strongly is the importance of early childhood, really, you know, beginning in pregnancy through three or five. And it's not that later years don't matter. They do. But the those early years when the brain is developing really matter. And, um, you know, if um, when, you know, beginning pregnancy, if a mom is abusing alcohol or drugs, that will have effects long after that uh, for that child. Uh, smoking uh, has a, you know, also has deleterious effects. And in general, our interventions are mostly after a kid, you know, is five or six and enters the public school system. And there, so nurse family partnership, you know, works with a mom beginning in pregnancy um, through age two. And at first it was hard for me to see how it could have all these effects years later, you know, less contact for that child with the criminal justice system, more likely to graduate uh, from high school. uh, less likely to be pregnant as a teenager, uh, you know, years later, uh, earning more income. And now I think we see that pathway more clearly, that if you can reduce um, ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences, mm-hmm. if you can reduce trauma in early childhood, then there's less cortisol flooding in the child's brain in ways that um, seem to affect brain architecture and put that child on a kind of a hair trigger fight or flight response. And uh, 
whether that's um, that's probably part of the path pathway, there may be others as well. But we now understand that these home visiting programs, you know, the question isn't whether we can uh, afford to invest in them; it's whether we can afford not to invest in them. Mm -hmm. And so often, we as a country, um, we just fail to um, put our money in programs that have such a great evidence background and can do so much good. Oh, great. Nick, thank, thank you for returning our program. And we always appreciate your insight and critical thinking on such a wide range of topics. And thanks to our audience there. There's more online uh, about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for our email updates at our website, chcradio.com. Thank you again. We appreciate it. Great to be with you. Already great. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and chcradio.com.